Lincoln, Brandon, Demo Splash, welcome to the program. How you doing? Everyone, oh, yeah. Everyone's really happy that you're here. I'm happy to chat with you. I do not know pretty much anything about this demo scene or demo parties, all this stuff. So I'm really excited to learn because I feel like I should know about this stuff, but I don't. So I don't know which one of you wants to take the lead on this, but what is Demo Splash? Uh, Well, I think I can give a little bit of an intro on that. For a quick background, I've been one of the people organizing Demo Splash since it started at CMU back in 2010. And so basically to explain what Demo Splash is, I think I need to quickly go over what the demo scene is and what a demo is. So, you know, a demo in the music world might be like, you know, something a band goes and records in their garage to go shop around to labels and try to get exposure. A demo in the demo scene is essentially it's a piece of computer artwork. You know, you might have seen like I'm sure we've all seen computer animation before. I mean, it's on TV all the time, but even like full length films that are computer animated, something like, you know, Toy Story or Shrek or that kind of thing. You know, those are typically done in animation software by big studios with lots of money and, you know, rendered on giant compute farms where a 90 minute movie might take a week of supercomputer time to render. But, you know, that's okay because it's Disney or Pixar or whoever producing (laughs) it and they have loads of money. A demo is really about what can I get code to render in real time on some computer, you know, it's not just like a video that somebody made in blender or Maya or whatever that you're going to go watch. It's literally a computer program that's drawing the things you see on screen and playing the music you hear in real time. Say probably the beginnings of these things actually came out of like the whole software piracy scene on BBS says back in like the eighties and nineties where you know, some computer programmer who had spent, you know, weeks figuring out how to break the copy protection on some video game would want to leave their signature there. So they would go and add their little intro screen, you know, hi, I'm, you know, whatever hacker name they had made up for themselves. Because obviously you don't want to throw a big advertisement of your real name on the fact that you just (laughs) cracked pirated software and opened yourself up to litigation and do some cool graphics and music stuff to show off a little bit. People thought this stuff was cool. Then it got to the point that, you know, people actually thought the little graphical intros were in some ways cooler than the pirating software and less likely to land them in jail. So people started focusing on making those, you know, making them longer, doing more cool stuff with them. And, people would have demo parties where they got together, watched demos. People who were writing stuff would, you know, release their new productions, their new demos there, like submitted as a program. People would run the program, try to put it up on the biggest monitor they could find. People who were at the party would vote on it. This was, it's always been more popular in Europe than it has really here in the U S and it's also, It was more popular years ago than it is now, but it's not dead. It's still not as big in the U.S. as it is in Europe, but it's definitely not dead. And basically what happened was the computer club at CMU had for at least a decade or so been doing this event called Demo Night, where 
the club would drag out a bunch of their vintage computers and screen old demos on the original hardware. And like, you know, maybe if somebody had a modern gaming PC with a nice graphics card, they would go try to show off some of the modern stuff. And one year, like in like late 2009, early 2010, you know, we started saying, you know, this event is a ton of work. We spend weeks preparing for it. We make up t-shirts. We do all this kind of stuff. And we haul, you know, 500 pounds of computers into a lecture hall at CMU for one night of screening demos that's only really attended by maybe 20 or 30 students. What if we tried to make this a longer event and opened it up to the public? So we initially started out just wanting to be kind of a demo watching event, you know, show off a bit of our collection, show off some of these classic demos we thought that were cool. But what happened was we put up a website, demosplash.org, advertised our event, talked about it, and we got a couple of emails from people saying, hey, how can I submit a demo to your competition? And we're thinking, you know, well, gee, we weren't really planning on having competitions because there aren't that many Americans who write these things. But, you know, if you want to submit something cool, we'll definitely screen it and we can, like, send you a shirt or something. So... That was back in 2010. Then for the next year, 2011, we did, I actually think I might be wrong on that. I think, I believe 2011 was the first demo splash. Yeah, it was October 2011 was the first demo splash. That's all on the website. You know, feel free to edit out that goof there if you feel like it. <laughs> but, you know, in, you know, 2011, we do this first demo splash, get a couple of competition submissions basically completely unsolicited. Then for the next year, 2012, we decide, you know, why don't we go all out and actually advertise competitions, try to have a real U.S. demo party, see if people will submit stuff to it. And we got a fair number of submissions, and basically it's kind of just been growing each year in terms of getting new stuff submitted, getting more people coming in. You know, it's really cool when we actually get students who are at the university to submit something, you know, even if it's just like a piece of static artwork or something, it's cool to get the students involved. And like, we've actually gotten well known enough that we get the occasional person like actually coming from Europe to go to this event in Pittsburgh, which to me is, you know, one of the people 10 years ago who was talking about, hey, wouldn't it be cool to try to do this thing? The fact that now people are coming, you know, from Europe, the home of the demo scene to come to our event is just so cool. That's really, really cool. And it's awesome that it's been going now in some capacity for, you know, a decade now as Demo Splash. But as you had mentioned, even a decade prior to that, just as a, you know, a, a somewhat annual thing that you would just do for one night. Just But it was like more contained with people that were in the school and into this scene. In fact, I might even say uh, it, it's been going for somewhere between 20 and 25 years prior, probably 1985 to 1990. Uh, a lot of people are sort of 1990 to 1995 to be like a golden era uh, for demos. So, uh, I mean, definitely it was going 10 years before that, but uh, but I'd say it, uh, probably even longer. Uh, the first cracks that Lincoln was talking about where we would see, they call them crack tros, which is crack intros. Uh, we started seeing those in the early eighties. Um, and then, you know, people were constantly trying to one up each other's crack tros and, 
you know, be like, well, you can put a spinning cube on the screen. Well, I can put a star field and a spinning cube and a logo and play a cute little chiptune ditty. And, you know, like everyone was just kind of trying to one up each other before they said, Hey, you know what sucks? Cracking games. Let's just make these. Yeah. Um, and that happened in a crack row that they played at a party in like, it was either 1992 or 1993, uh, a famous demo group called Lemon. Uh, just in inside of their intro was like, you know, pir- software piracy hurts our computer scene and the, the developers we love. What's the point of cracking games? Let's just make demos. Totally. Um, so that was a big turnaround. Now, you know, Brendan, how did you get involved in all of this stuff? Because, I mean, both of you, for both of you, I mean, this is like, you know, <laughs> a pretty niche thing to be into but i find it fascinating when people have very specific interests like this so you know starting with you brendan like what was your journey into this so so lincoln and i were actually talking about this today um and and it's interesting lincoln has been running uh, you know demo slash for uh, with with all of the cmu computer club for a long time and my first demo party was in 2016 when Demo Splash actually invited me up as a music performer. Um, and uh, so I'm a chiptune guy. I write music on old, like, you know, 70s and 80s and early 90s computers and game consoles and whatever. So, like, if you need some Sega Genesis dance music or some, you know, like NES or Atari or Commodore beeps and boops, then, then I'm your guy. Um, but, uh, so, so I've been doing this since almost since the inception of the scene, I've been writing music on old computers for 30 plus years, you know, that sort of a thing. I've been a part of the scene, but I haven't actually gone to a party. Um, and the demo scene has a a term for that. They call me a couch scener. (laughs) I've been observing from afar. Um, so, um, so I got involved uh, much more seriously in the scene, probably about the same time that Lincoln started running the party, but I didn't actually go to a party until, you know, five years ago. I got you. Um, the thing so, that I, um, yeah, I mean, it, I was just already doing a thing that was, you know, that was scene relevant, I guess is the way to put it. You know, I was discovering the scene, but discovering it over my modem instead of, you know, like going to parties and became a part of it by, you know, emailing my songs to people and stuff like that, rather than, you know, like actually going somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, I guess, where I fit. I feel like I fit in now. Now I actually go to parties, although I haven't been to a European party. I was going to go to the biggest one, which is 2000 people in South Germany. Uh, there's a party called Revision and then COVID stuff happened. So <laughs> that mm-hmm. got canceled. Totally. You... Um, I- I can definitely relate to you in a strange way in terms of the music aspect of things and being kind of like, you know, a couch participant of my music scene. Cause like when I was in uh, middle school and high school, I got into like making beats and electronic music and um, I didn't know other people that were really doing it. And I like happened to like see that there was a show one time and I went to this show and there was like other people that just had, you know, like some people, there was one guy that had a game boy and was doing his thing. And then somebody else just had like some Korg Electribes making some, playing some beats. I was like, you could do this. Like you could take this stuff out and play stuff for other people. 
This is a thing that people were doing in my city? What? This is super cool. Did, did you go to the Berg or where was this event? I mean, I probably Garfield Artworks was some of the first ones that I saw in Pittsburgh. Um, Manny okay. was doing a lot of stuff there. And then um, there was there was some other things. Now, I'm I am 34 years old, so I, I, I'm okay. maybe a little bit younger than both of you i don't know how old everybody is honestly um but uh it was, i'm the old man in the chat okay. i think <laughs> uh but uh it, it tends to whenever i'm having conversations like this with people i always tend to be like a decade under everybody else but um the one thing that you had mentioned too brendan uh talking about getting into making music on these platforms at the time you were getting into it they weren't like vintage platforms this wasn't like a like a, a niche way to make music then it was kind of like this is just how you make electronic music at the time and now it's become this weird right. nostalgia thing but for you you were like just doing it at yeah. the time because those were the tools that you used yeah for me you know i was writing commodore 64 or like dos pc music or whatever you want to you know like these kinds of songs on these machines when you could buy them from a store yeah. You know, I mean, not that you can't buy a PC from a store now, but you can't buy a Commodore 64. You know, like I witnessed the introduction of the Game Boy and you couldn't actually, this is, this is one thing that actually is, I mean, everyone will hear this and be like, oh yeah, sure. Uh, but you know, like maybe it doesn't occur to everyone when they're thinking about it. I saw the introduction of the Game Boy in 1989, but you couldn't really make music on a Game Boy except for maybe using the like Game Boy camera thing. Um, there, there was no other way to make music on a Game Boy until the year 2000 when uh, Little Sound DJ or yeah. LSDJ came out for the Game Boy. So, um, you know, like the, a lot of people see that as kind of the beginning of chiptune, but this was happening much, you know, much, much earlier. It's just that this brought in uh, the, the availability of LSDJ brought in kind of a second wave of chiptuners and kind of revitalized the art. Um, you said there, there are two famous chip tuners that started a, uh, a large chip tune festival in New York city called Blipfest, Um, and that would be Noel sleep or Jeremiah Johnson and Bitshifter, who is, um, uh, why am I blanking on this? Josh Davis. Um, so, um, like Josh and Jeremiah, uh, you know, really kind of started using, uh, tools like LSDJ. There's another one called nano loop. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, there were, there was this kind of club, if you want to call it that, I mean, it more identifies as a label called eight bit peoples that they were major players in and that sort of a thing. And so they started bringing in performers that were, um, you know, like doing this sort of thing. But like, again, the people that were probably the first chip tuners, you could argue that the people that were the first chip tuners were actually the game composers for some of these old systems, you know, like they were musicians trying to make electronic music. It just happened to be geared towards the game, but you know, just because someone writes a movie soundtrack, does that mean they're not a symphonic composer? So, you know, like these are really the first, you know, like electronic composers on those platforms. And sure. then uh, the demo sceners that were doing roughly the same thing at roughly the same time, uh, not a part of the same community, although there was some intersection. Uh, for for example, Yeroon Tell uh, is very famous for a lot of Commodore 64 uh, game soundtracks, and he was a big and still is a big player in the European scene. Um, there was a presentation. The most recent uh, 
live or in-person party that I've been to was at party in Boston and actually Lincoln was also there and your Intel had a track in a demo that was presented at at party. So like he's still active uh, doing stuff. So it's interesting to see, you know, like a name that like I grew up playing games with, you know, like this guy's music in it. Yeah. But now I like, he's, he's a guy that I know and talk to on hangouts and like, you know, I'm a part of his scene and that sort of a thing. So uh, it's interesting how you can you can like join from afar, but then suddenly you know go like you said go to shows, get sucked in, uh, meet people just like you, um, that sort of a thing. And that's what you learn is that like as you like if you go to demo splash, uh, you'll learn that there are a whole lot of people that share even you know like even if you're not like cons- you don't consider yourself a scener, uh, you'll go to an event like this and you'll discover there are a whole lot of people like you or at least into an aesthetic that you uh, appreciate. Absolutely. So this year, I went way off track. By the no, way, it's all good. <laughs> I answer your question. Listen, listen, listen. It's a podcast. It goes. It's supposed to go off track. That's you know, people that listen to these things, their brains all over the place. They don't want anything focused. You know, they need they need everything. Overstimulation. It's twenty twenty. We need it all. So. Speaking of Demo Splash, it is happening online this year, November 20th and 21st, correct? Yes. Um, I guess let's talk a little bit about that specifically. And then Lincoln, I'm curious about like your co- contributions and like how you got into this whole demoing scene as well. But first, talk about Demo Splash. So Demo Splash historically has always been an in-person event, but watching a stream and having a video stream on the internet has been a part of demo splash since the very beginning that basically, you know, because we recognize there's a ton of interest around the demo scene in Europe, we wanted to be accessible to that crowd without them all having to buy plane tickets and come to Pittsburgh. So we've had a stream since the beginning. Like there are some adaptations that we've had to make, to try to do this as a totally online event. You know, we're having a fair bit of talk now. Historically, what we've always done is brought all of the hardware, all of the old machines, all of the video and audio conversion hardware we need to do something like take an old TRS-80 or an Apple IIGS and get the video out of that onto like a big HDMI projector. Yeah, We've just brought all of that stuff to a central location, an auditorium at CMU, and ran the event there. But this year we're having to discuss, basically it looks like for each kind of each platform, whoever has that machine at their house or knows how to use it or something is just going to have to stream the video of them operating that machine and running whatever demos they are from their house. So it's probably going to be like myself and two or three other guys basically switching back and forth you know, who's running the show at the moment based on who has what piece of hardware and, you know, talk presenters that we've typically brought to Pittsburgh will be, you know, calling in over video conferencing to give their talks and we'll have to do Q&A over like IRC or some other sort of chat Mm -hmm. versus having people in the audience do it. I guess one adaptation, you know, probably a good laugh here that's been a bit of a relief for us is Deciding what food we're going to serve at the event is always good fun because food is <laughs> food is the ultimate piece of bike shed discussion when you're planning an event 
everybody has an opinion on food and they will make it known loudly and repeatedly. <laughs> so not having to think at all about how many vegetarian burritos versus beef burritos we need or whatever. Sure. That's actually kind of a load off our backs, but at the same time now all of us have to learn how to do video streaming. And, you know, I'm typically the kind of person I'm, you know, hiding behind a workbench somewhere with my soldering iron, you know, restoring some, you know, restoring some piece of computer equipment that's likely older than I am, like this guy. <laughs> yeah. Cool. And now it's like I get to go learn about video production and, you know, go talk about all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Hey, well, nothing wrong with learning. Nope. Like, once, you know, once you quit learning things, isn't life just kind of boring at that point? I think so. I I I I'm always always trying to create more problems for myself to get out of so I can become better at just, you know, problem solving. Now, with your personal involvement, Lincoln, I know that you mentioned you you were helping put together these events and all of this stuff, but like in terms of like an artistic contribution to the demo scene, um, if there is anything that you do do, Lincoln, like what is your background? Because Brandon had mentioned he got into this through Chiptune. Yeah. So the major contribution I've given to Demo Splash over the years has largely just been repairing old hardware, making it physically available, that sort of thing. Gotcha. But, That's important. You know, some of the computer club people, like some of us who organized the event, you know, some current students, some alums, that kind of thing. I graduated a few years ago, but we've actually written some demos before. It's kind of funny, really, because it's a thing that people had talked about before that we thought, oh, gee, no, we couldn't do that. And then what ended up happening was I got involved with the computer club when I was an undergrad in college. You know, I was doing a degree in electrical and computer engineering. And this friend of mine just hears me talking about vintage computers. It might have been like an old Macintosh or something like that. And he just says, oh, if you're interested in old computers, you should meet my housemate, who's one of the guys in the computer club. Like, we have a basement full of old machines. The club has all of this vintage hardware that they do stuff with. Like, you should come by a meeting sometime. So... I got involved, ended up becoming the club's treasurer basically because they needed somebody to do it, but got involved with working with the hardware there. One of the things the club had sitting in their machine room was an Apple Lisa. Like for those who don't who aren't that interested in computer history, the Lisa was Apple's machine that came out before the Macintosh. It was Apple's first graphical user interface machine. It was pretty much a direct ripoff of what Xerox is doing with like the Xerox Star, Xerox Alto, Xerox Office system, but it was Apple's graphical business computer, and the club had one. They're kind of rare, like you see them on eBay occasionally, but you know, you will pay several thousand dollars and probably have to repair the thing, and the club just had this Lisa sitting there. So I took it on myself to make this Lisa work again go through, rebuild the keyboard, rebuild the power supply, clean a bunch of like dirty contacts on chip sockets, get it running. Then it's like, okay, what are we actually going to do with an Apple Lisa? Like this is a cool piece of history, but it's a business computer that was meant for doing like spreadsheets and Gantt charts and stuff. We're not going to put it out at a retro gaming event. And, you know, you know, what do we do with this thing? And one of my friends jokingly suggests hey, maybe we should write a demo for it. 
And someone else is like, you know, we might be able to do that. So we end up writing the first ever demo for the Apple Lisa. The first time any of us had ever worked on a demo. And then back then there was this demo party going on in Cleveland, Ohio called Pixel Jam. So we drove from Pittsburgh to Cleveland with our Lisa, showed (laughs) off our demo, ended up taking first place in their retro competition. To be fair, there were only two entries, but, you know, it generated some buzz. Hey, these, you know, crazy guys from CMU wrote a demo for the Lisa. Isn't that funny? Yeah. And I didn't actually write any of the code on that one. My contribution was mostly hardware and I did some of the graphics, but... I think for our later demos. So we did, we've done two for the Apple Lisa and two for this old vector graphics game console called the Vectrex. Mm-hmm. On the two Vectrex demos, I actually wrote some of the code on that. It was kind of a funny story when we were working on our first one. I was a grad student at the time and I was a teaching assistant for this embedded systems programming class. And the processor this embedded systems class used the Freescale like 68HC12 or something was very similar to the old Motorola 6809 chip that was in the Vectrex. Because like old computer designs never really die. They just end up inside your thermostat or microwave or whatever. (laughs) But anyhow, I had some experience writing assembly code for the 6809 around the time that people were deciding they wanted to do a Vectrex demo. So I ended up writing some of the code for that. Then, like, our second Lisa one, I put together some of the graphics on that, like a bunch of stuff that's in the intro scenes of that demo, including there's a sequence where it looks like the machine is booting up, but if you actually sit there and time it, it boots way faster than an actual Lisa does because it's basically just a simulated boot screen. And while I sat down with a stopwatch and actually timed all of this stuff, it was decided to speed it up in the interest of not boring the viewer with Wait, waiting two minutes for the machine to boot. <laughs> I think I might have driven one of the other guys on the project crazy, but the, you know, relative to that speed up factor, like the boot process looks reasonably authentic. And then I put together some of the graphics for like, there's a scene with like somebody going through their email and like the email program graphics and stuff. I did the icons kind of trying to think if this machine had had an email client in a web browser, what might it have actually looked like? Yeah. So that is really, really interesting. I have like a, a ping pong of questions in my head. And I'm curious now, this doesn't really have anything to do specifically with the demo scene, but more, I guess, just your experience hands-on with computers over the past who knows how long decades i imagine yeah. at this point you've probably been taken apart and fixing machines right I've, uh is you know computers everything's getting smaller and weirder and sleeker is it better do computers actually work better now are they built better <laughs> they're they're so much more powerful like your smartphone even if you have like a cheapo phone but like the phone I have sitting next to me, which isn't a terribly high-end phone, and it's also like two or three years old, is more powerful by quite a bit 
than the laptop I had when I was in college in like 2007. And that was a fairly nice laptop back then. And even like my circa 2009 iPod touch had more Ram, a faster CPU and more storage space than like my family's first desktop PC. Yeah. So in terms of what you can do with it, the technology's gotten so much better. The things that are kind of annoying is because technology has improved so much on the hardware side, software is not written as efficiently as it used to be. You know, if you look at like Windows 3.1 fit onto six, you know, 1.44 megabyte floppy disks. These days, as I found out when I was fixing a laptop for somebody last year, the Windows 10 install image is now so large, like it's bigger than four gigabytes. It's now so large that creating a bootable flash drive of it on a Linux machine is a real pain in the neck. Okay. So code bloat has kind of gotten ridiculous that, you know, if you went and looked at, you know, if you open up Microsoft Word or LibreOffice Writer or whatever, and you go write a word processing document, unless you're doing some really, really, really advanced stuff, you could probably go do that just fine, just as well on like an old version of Claris works on like a Motorola 68K Macintosh from the early 90s. Because a lot of those workflows haven't really changed that much. But at the same time, you know, we can do stuff today like, you know, you can stream 4K video over the internet when like back then streaming video at all at, you know, 1200 baud was just not going to be a thing. Mm-hmm. There's like so much stuff that annoys me about like operating systems. I use Mac and Windows every day just because I have so many different computers for different things. And like I hate that like every little thing, like when you really take something out of the out of the box, it's like everything's animated. Like why does everything have to be animated? Why does everything have to like blip and bloop and all it's just like annoys me so much. (laughs) It's just like I just need it to work. I don't need like my little icons to do a little jig every time I open the it's like and I know that those things, while it may not be taking up that much memory or processing power or whatever, it's doing something that like I need my it, computer to do other so things. It does actually. Yeah. It's um, <sighs> sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, no, but it, it actually does. And if you disable all of this crap, your computer can be like twice as fast as it is. And so that's one thing that really annoys me about this. Um, and, and just what Lincoln's talking about, we've really gotten lazy at writing code. Um, like to give you, to give you a number, um, a Commodore 64, which is certainly not, top of the line, even in the eighties. Right. But, but demos are written for this. So let's make it relevant. Um, you know, people write demos that play CD quality audio and do poor, but passable 3d graphics and stuff like this in the demo scene on Commodore 64s. The Commodore 64 is one megahertz, which is approximately half to one sixth, the speed of a graphing calculator (laughs) or if you have a slow laptop, one two thousandth the speed of one of the cores on that laptop. You know, like I mean, that's how slow that machine is now. And that thing has. I can RAM, still, Your laptop CPU has L one cache. Yeah, I mean, like your this thing that your car probably is driven by 
a Raspberry Pi or like situation, like maybe even multiple Raspberry Pis, these computers are also 2,000 times as fast as a Commodore 64. And although you're not going to get a graphical windowing environment, it is possible on a Commodore 64, but you can send email from a Commodore 64. Like you can do the BS things that people that are like, I don't need a fast computer. I don't need a powerful computer. You can do those things with, you know, like something that's old. Now, no one would want to, and it would be really sluggish when you're doing it. But like, if you use an old enough browser and, you know, like that sort of a thing on an old enough computer, you could possibly even do it as well or better than someone using a whiz bang brand new, you know, i9 or ryzen or whatever with firefox or chrome or sure. you know the newest versions of that um so like that's something that sort of irritates uh you know like the uh, at least some of the computer nerd community at large yeah I um, mean- and especially the demo scene um i should say that the uh, part of what um we're not just trying to produce the coolest art as the uh, as the demo scene, like uh, the demo scene at large, is also trying to overcome technical limitations on both old and modern hardware. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to make a Commodore sixty four do you know jump and do tricks, but they're also trying to make whatever your modern you know like modern or most modern machine. They're trying to make it do something like uh, you know Lincoln mentioned Pixar and DreamWorks and whatever are doing like you know renders on Toy Story that take you know like months right but what if you could animate toy story in real time on a computer that you bought from best buy or something like that that's what these guys are trying to do as far as pushing modern hardware yeah um and you can do it oh yeah i think it's super cool i think it's really important to push the technology further in a productive way because you know without little scenes like this like how do these things really grow? I feel like most of the people that probably end up really making waves in terms of making something like a toy story happen. They're probably people that were doing things like this, you know, a decade prior to being in Pixar. Yeah. Um, in fact, um, a lot of effects that you see in movies or in games or, it, yeah, I mean, really just, if you see a graphic effect somewhere, there's a good chance that it happened in the demo scene three years ago. Um, And you can, you can often trace these effects. And in fact, the demo scene is a a springboard for, you know, like game developers and, you know, like people in, you know, computer graphics and whatever. Uh, Maybe you've heard of remedy games. Uh, They did flat out and God remedy did a whole bunch of things. Um, But remedy games, who, uh, you know, like has written PS2 games and PC games and whatever got their start or a lot of the people in it got their start. Oh, Max Payne is another good example. Mm -hmm. Um, They be, they used to be a demo group called future crew who wrote the most famous demo in the world, probably second reality. Or if you look at the Xbox Riddick game, or if you look at uh, payday two, those are both written by uh, Starbreeze studios who got their start as Triton one of the same demo groups that competed like at some of the demo parties with them, you know, so like a bunch of these groups evolve into, you know, like studios that do graphics and stuff like that. So, um, and they'll, they'll bring their old tricks, you know, um, 
there's a there's a famous demo called um, State of the Art for the Amiga, uh, which is another computer that probably a lot of people won't recognize. But mm-hmm. um, the point is, is that this is this on an eight megahertz computer, which is you know not very fast. Uh, they manage to figure out a cool thing that draws triangles really fast, and they use the triangles. Instead of using them as like 3D polygon animations, they actually use it to draw full motion video. Um, And uh, so they they wrote some sort of, you know, like thing that does complicated math and takes in like screen grabs from something uh, like they they actually they took a camcorder out. um, And one of the dudes that wrote the demo, his girlfriend was like a dance, uh, like a dance major or whatever. Um, and did dance a uh, competition dance and was like placing uh, in dance and whatever. So he was just like, you and your friend, will you go out to like a field with me that's very nondescript? And we're going to, you know, like record some stuff on a camcorder. And then they ran an algorithm on it that separated the dancers from the background and, you know, like converted it into triangles. And you can save, you know, like this computer music video on a single floppy disk with music synchronizes everything this guy got hired by uh, uh well or or even start uh, worked in a game studio or whatever and cr- created the game winter gold for the super nintendo which was you remember the super effects and star fox you know i've been wanting to bring so, up that damn chip the whole time and i just haven't been able to bring it in yet but, <laughs> but that's the one thing i've been so, ta- i've been thinking about it i keep thinking about star fox because like that's my point of reference as so, a kid <laughs> The last Super FX game, uh, which, you know, Super FX was in Star Fox, was this Winter Gold thing. Oh, cool. And they reused the algorithm that that they created to put full motion video in a Super Nintendo game because the Super Nintendo is about as capable as the Amiga, you know, well, at least for this purpose. Um, So, you know, like... You, you see this stuff get reused and re-abused everywhere, and it's it's kind of fascinating to watch, sit back and watch it if you know the history of some of this stuff. Yeah, I, I, I imagine, like anything that you do creatively, once you're behind the scenes, you just view things and you interact with things in a different way you know i can't listen to albums now without like being like oh wow that snare drum sounds weird or some like nitpicky thing that nobody else gives a shit about but people like me so i imagine it's probably really similar for you brandon and lincoln in terms of like oh like you probably can't look at anything like you boot up a computer and you're like you know like how these animations happen or like why that thing is bouncing or you know all the ins and outs and like i i i I imagine it is really really weird interacting with any technology because it's everywhere now it's not like this niche thing like it was even 10 years ago it was a lot different it was like oh wow you know these ipods are cool i mean now it's just it's nuts you know you can't go to a fast food restaurant without there being some touch screen thing that you can order food on. And it's wild. I don't know. It's just everywhere and every facet of everything. Yeah. Sometimes it feels like a bit much like one thing for me, you know, going back to between the thing that really excites me personally with the demo scenes that I'm interested a lot in computing history and vintage computers. You know, I could tell all sorts of stories about that stuff. But so the thing that interests me the most is just seeing what people can push this, you know, ancient primitive hardware to do, like actually 
one of my favorite platforms to look at demos on. Like, I won't say that these are the best demos or even the best retro demos, but just to see what people can do with it is like the original Atari VCS, you know, the original late 70s fake wood grain game console that you plugged into your TV and the graphics looked really cheesy because like the video hardware was so primitive. The CPU, you know, it's the same one megahertz chip that's in that Commodore 64, but without the really nice video and sound hardware and with way, way, way less RAM, I think like 128 bytes or something. I'd have to go look at the exact specs. But seeing what people manage to do with that thing never fails to amaze me. You know, I've seen real-time 3D spinning objects on screen. I've seen people do all kinds of stuff that probably the guys at Atari who designed that chip would look at that and be like, wow, I designed this thing and I'm impressed that somebody made it do that. Mm -hmm. So then coming into the world of modern technology, it's a little frustrating to me to think somebody was doing 3D wireframe rendering on an Atari VCS and I open up, you know, a coffee maker and the CPU in that coffee maker is more powerful than what like my laptop I had when I was in high school because I like this old 90s laptop is more powerful than that but I get why they do it because this stuff is so cheap now like the cheap little CPUs that would go in something like a thermostat inside that coffee pot inside your oven that now has a color touch screen instead of just a little green seven segment (laughs) thing that tells the time and beeps at you those things are like five bucks or less like they cost less than a burger so i get why the companies use that rather than using like the one dollar processor and having to hire some really serious programmers to do it all compact and neat and stuff but still just to me as someone who appreciates that minimalism appreciates the artistry it takes to do something well under constraints I just look at a lot of modern technology and even like going back to your complaint about, you know, why do icons need to bounce on my computer screen when I just want to check my email? I just look at it and I think this could be done better. Yeah, it's I don't need everything that I own to be smart. You know, like like the, the, the concept is cute. But like, like I have a friend that has all smart lights in his house and he can like change all the colors on his phone. I'm like, this is cool. But like. I just need light and like, I don't need a smart toaster. You know what I mean? If I, if I don't toast my bagel properly, that's on me. I don't need to be able to control, you know, the, the, the color temperature of my bagel through a smartphone, but like people are into it. Yeah. I'm totally with you on that stuff. The whole smart devices thing. I have very little of that kind of stuff. Like my toaster is like a forties or fifties design toaster that was made in like the eighties or nineties. Funny fact, it's actually the same toaster that's on the album art for weird owls dare to be stupid. I noticed that a couple of months ago, it's an old sunbeam toaster, but yeah, like I don't want an app on my phone to turn my lights on and off. Mm -hmm. Like I get the convenience, but a lot of this smart stuff there are that it's not well designed to begin with. And there tend to be like glaring security holes that all sorts of stuff, like a lot of these, you know, DDoS attacks on websites and stuff come from like cheap wireless routers, cheap home automation stuff that was just hilariously poorly secured. Or, you know, think about this, you go buy a bunch of Internet of Things cameras, 
put them in your house, including inside your bedroom. Some people do this. And then it turns out, oh, those things had a security bug in them where like anybody on the public internet can go watch video that's inside your house. Yeah, real cool. And then on top of that, how many of these things say a company makes this cool Internet of Things thing, you like it, you think the app's cool, you think the technology's cool, you buy it, put it in your house, then that company gets bought by a bigger company. The bigger company just wanted the patents and the people they don't want to spend the money to run the servers that make your thing work. And now you have a pretty electronic doorstop. Yeah. You know, my, the light switches in my house, some of which are like the original on off switches from the fifties, those still turn on and off. And if one breaks, I can go to the hardware store and buy another for like three bucks. Mm -hmm. One we're having this conversation just about like, you know, the power of chips and all these Years later, people still finding ways to push the Atari to levels that, you know, people didn't realize that they could in the 70s or the 80s or the 90s. It's like it's almost like, you know, the amount of potential that the human brain has and how much we don't tap it. It's like so interesting where technology is always evolving, but we're never even like fully understanding what the technology can do until 10, 15, 20 years later. So it's like. And like work, but every year there's a new smartphone coming out, or there's a new computer and new processors and all of these things. It's like, do we really need as much as we have right now? Because it is fucking crazy. It seems like to me, I have a computer that is the first computer I had when I was in high school. It's an old IBM computer. I couldn't tell you the specs because I don't know a whole lot about that sort of stuff. I'm just. I'm not knowledgeable in that, but it was the first computer that I recorded music on. I could tell you it's not very powerful at all, and I used it way longer than I should. I mean, I was recording music on this thing until probably 2009 or 10, and uh, it was very outdated, but it worked. You know, I was able to record plenty of music, master music, burn my CDs, make demos, and do all of these things where... You know, the stuff that I was doing was just as good as my friends that had, you know, nice MacBooks with Pro Tools, whatever it was at the time. And like, it was like, even back then, it was very much like it's not so much, you don't need to always have the newest, fanciest things. You can, if you know how to make the things that you have work, they can work for you. And to this day, I'm always telling people that want to get into making music or doing video production, they're like, well, I need like a really good computer. I'm like, eh, you really don't. Like if you actually just get, you can make things, you can do a lot with a little, a little bit. How do you oh, feel yeah, about like, that, Brandon? That was more, yeah. you know, that was more true, you know, like 20, 30 years ago that, you know, you wouldn't have been, if you had had a Commodore 64, you, you're not recording yourself playing guitar on that. You're not going to get any decent quality audio out of it, but mm-hmm. computers have improved so much now, like. My daily use computer at the moment is a laptop from 2013. I'm not really like a hardcore modern video gamer. You know, I'm not doing a whole bunch of 3D graphics work. Like, I don't have to have the latest and greatest stuff just to send emails, create documents, you know, chat with people, that sort of thing. And even with music, a good quote I saw on this once, I forget who it was, said it, but you know, as I'm sure like you're well aware, you know, doing music, playing in a band, that kind of thing. People love to get hung up on gear. And I really liked this quote. Somebody said that I saw on a forum once that basically said, I guarantee you the majority of the music you really love was originally recorded with lousier gear than whatever you own today. Oh yeah. 
Yeah. That's, that's, I've been saying that forever. You know, I like when I was like making, you know, a lot of metal stuff when I was younger and like getting into like, you know, nitpicky arguments with my friends that use Pro Tools. I'm like, you know, what, what version of Pro Tools did they record all those old Metallica albums on? It didn't happen. They didn't. <laughs> it's like those albums <laughs> sound better than everything we're listening to now. So much goes into just actually like learning the craft and not needing a computer to do everything for you. I mean, to this day, I have objectively nicer equipment than that old computer I was just talking about, but I run into way more issues with like weird latency and all this stuff on my new computers than I ever did on that old thing. It's so strange. It's just like there's all this weird I don't know. It's like they try to make things work too too nice. And it it's I don't I don't know. Brandon, can you, you help me you out? You could here? say if we <laughs> if we knew then what we know now, uh except twenty twenty has kind of proved that wrong. Uh but <laughs> you know <laughs> um yeah, I, I don't know. I think uh, I think a lot of people we we could make these comparisons. I think people like comparisons. Um, you mentioned like, and and Lincoln talked about pushing, uh, you know, the Atari twenty six hundred to the max. Um, I think people don't know why, other than the fact that it's old, right? Uh, I don't think people know why the Atari twenty six hundred is such a pile of junk. Like, it's a miracle that you can play games on it. Um, and I think the two things that we need to, uh, you know, like address so that people understand why anything happening on the 2600 is a miracle are one, how much memory it has. Um, so how much, uh, you know, I mean, do, do you know what a byte and a kilobyte and a megabyte and whatever is. Yeah. Um, so how much memory and and we've we've established I'll I'll go ahead and give you a clue right like the commodore 64 is called that because it has 64k of memory wow um so you know i mean that's that's like you know mind blowing right there but um so 64k of memory is you know like on the floppy you know like literally floppy disks that we held back in the day one side of the, that floppy would hold 180K. So the memory on the machine is literally not even, you know, like it's a third of, you know, like what you can hold on a side of the disk. All right. So, so we've established some like basic parameters for how much memory is. How much memory do you think an Atari 2600 has? Uh, it, I, I don't gonna know. It's going to be less I'm gonna go because it's crappier. Eight. Less. Oh, wow. Two. Less. Point <laughs> five. Or was it one? Or less? Less. <laughs> to both. Okay. All right. <laughs> it has. I, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna blurt it out because, yeah. you know, like, I don't want to, <laughs> you'll be, you won't be guessing forever, but it is one eighth of one K. It is 128 bytes. Wow. Which is basically a tweet back when Twitter <laughs> didn't allow 280 characters, Yeah, a tweet worth of Ram, mm -hmm. you know, 140 characters is a tweet back then. Um, and 128 is what you get from an Atari 2600. So let's make this more complicated just a little bit. Most game systems, in fact, m one might argue almost all game systems 
have something called a frame buffer. And this is like your video card has a frame buffer. Like you, you go out and you buy a video card and your, your video card's like, yeah, it's got six gigs of RAM or whatever on a new video card or, you know, whatever it has. Right. And in, in that memory is literally just a piece of RAM that gets drawn to the screen the whole time. Right. And so it's, it's a picture of what, what goes on the screen in memory and the job of the video card, I mean, the first and foremost job of the video card is just to get whatever is in that frame buffer onto the screen 60 times or 120 times a second or whatever your refresh rate is. Okay. So most game systems or whatever have this section of RAM called frame buffer, which might be part of system RAM, might be separate, whatever. Um, and, you know, the Atari 2600 doesn't have that. So, you know, like people might be like, oh, well, it has 128 bytes of RAM, which is, you know, like complete and utter BS, but at least it has a frame buffer so it can draw a picture from RAM. No, it doesn't. So the way the Atari 2600 draws uh, what's going on the screen is it has something called a line buffer instead, which tracks maybe like four different times that it can change whatever color the gun is drawing while the picture is being drawn onto the screen. So your program, like most people would write a program, a modern program that it like think of like an indie game that has 2D sprites or something like that, right? It's kind of like cutting and pasting pictures of your character onto the screen. That would that would be a very a very very crude description of how you can write a game now. You okay. could just be like the character is rotated 90 degrees and it's over there on the screen and like, you know, the the you'd have some sort of piece of code that just draws the screen, cuts, paste, uh, you know, stuff into memory. And then, you know, the video card just knows how to, you know, like get that onto the screen. But the Atari 2600, your program has to be written fundamentally different. You know, like you have to be like uh, ahead of one line that like, think of like a CRT, right? There's an electron gun in the back of your tube television or whatever that's going across yeah. and down the TV and whatever, if you look at it at really slow speed. So it has to know one line ahead of whatever line or row that it's on when it's going to change color four times. Okay, change to purple. Okay, change to orange. Okay, change to brown. So your program has to be written to know those things. Yeah, so that's And like- you don't get any, like... <laughs> so how did ET happen? <laughs> like the pe- everyone's like ET is just this like garbage game, but like it's actually a miracle that you can even get ET to run around on the screen sure. or get some sound to come out of the speakers. Um so to be able to get 3D graphics to come out of these systems is like even more, you know, like mind exploding or whatever. Um and uh, and like Link- uh, you and Lincoln were talking about like light bulbs and toasters and whatever. <sighs> Um, actually at demo splash two, maybe three years ago, we actually got a submission on a chip that was originally engineered to turn light bulbs on and off. So like those hue light bulbs that you have that you can control with your cell phone, uh, that chip is actually 160 times as fast as an Atari 2600. So someone wrote a demo that does 3d rendering and all sorts of cool stuff. By the way, this, this also doesn't have a frame buffer, but it's so fast that you can just emulate a frame buffer on the chip. And then on top of that, they wrote something that draws this imaginary frame buffer that they invented out to a television. They actually got it to broadcast to the TV. Okay. So what was it broadcasting on the TV? 
uh, it was broadcasting like the output, like you could write okay. like a Nintendo emulator okay. for this chip because okay. it's okay. powerful enough okay. yeah. and get it to bro- like just drop the chip on top of the TV and it would broadcast to the TV. Whoa. <laughs> like, and this is possible to do on like this little thing that turns your light bulbs on and off. That's wild. That's really, really cool. So, so this is the kind of stuff that the scene is <laughs> and like, yeah. this, this is the stuff that I'm, you know, like to go back to your like original question, what are you thinking about when you're like, you know, looking at the smart stuff and whatever. And I'm thinking like, man, they're really wasting, you know, like uh, why did they put a raspberry pie in my fridge when they could have used like some old thing as turns out, it's like Lincoln said, it's a $5 thing that they could just put in my fridge to figure out the temperature, but they could have done this with something smaller. Yeah. Cause you're talking yeah, about the ESP 8266 demo, right, Brendan? Correct. Yep. Yeah. The, de- the development boards for playing around with those that this thing got submitted on, you can buy those for something like four or $5. And that's like a whole yep. development board with like a USB cable that you can plug into your PC. The tools for programming it are free, that kind of thing. And it's like, yeah, this stuff is just, so cheap now and somebody was literally able to as brendan said get that to generate like an analog tv broadcast signal like literally the kind of signal that would have come out of like a tv station's transmitter back in the days of analog television i mean obviously not at the like half million watts of power or whatever because that would get the fcc knocking on your door but like if you got it close enough to a tv it could pick that up on whatever channel, just like, you know, watching TV back in the day with a $5 chip that was intended to go in like smart light bulbs and smart toasters and stuff. That is really, really cool. Is there like any, like maybe one or two other things that really stand out from the past few years that was like super mind blowing that happened at Demo Splash? Oh, uh, Heiko's, um, demo was really cool. Like I, I, I find that, so these, uh, these demo competitions are separated into categories. Like there's often a retro category and then there's a modern category mm-hmm. and then they have like a music competition and a graphics competition. But I always love watching. There's a, a category called wild or a lot of parties have something called wild, which is basically just, you know, like this piece of hardware doesn't really fit in with the other pieces of hardware, or it's, it's not period. It's not modern. It's somewhere in between, or someone hacked their whole, their old piece of hardware or whatever. So I'm always, that that's where this light bulb demo, you know, like was entered, was into the, the wild competition, I think, gotcha. or that's where it would fit best. Mm-hmm. Um, but someone brought a holographic display that he wrote a demo for, uh, or more accurately, he ported an existing demo uh, and got it to work in 3D on this holographic thing. So it's this like brick of plexiglass that projects a 3D image and you're like looking at it, you can move your head back and forth and like see a 3d image on this, you know, like this block. That's really cool. Um, and like just seeing like cool, it's kind of like just really it, the, the demo scene is all about like hardware hacking and getting the most out of your hardware. So whenever anyone does something like that, um, you know, it often stands out. So I would, I would say the holographic thing stood out. Um, you know, I would say the, the TV thing stood out, uh, when people bring weird platforms, uh, there, there's a dude in engineering at CMU, uh, his name is Soji. Um, 
he programs, uh, well, he, he is Japanese and he brought his Japanese machines back to the U S with him or, or more appropriately, he, he rescued them from his parents' attic <laughs> and got them shipped uh, to him. But since no one else has access to these machines really, unless you like order them from eBay for astronomical amounts or whatever, um, you don't really get to see this kind of stuff. Um, so one of the, one of my favorite things about demo splash and demo parties in general is just seeing like weird platforms that, you know, like you wouldn't be able to, you know, like what, what were people programming or using or playing games or whatever on in Japan in 1987, you know, like stuff like that. And that's what people will write the demos for. Uh, so he has entered several demos over the past couple of years. Uh, in you know using his his machines and that that's really cool. Uh, I don't know what Lincoln's favorites are, but I imagine one of Soji's demos is at least one of them. Yeah, Soji's done some really cool stuff with his Japanese machines. Another good one on the oddball hardware front, which we get submissions for occasionally. So, so like there were. You know, contrary to popular belief, computers did exist in the Soviet Union. They weren't all that common. Some of them were just knockoffs of Western machines. Some of them were their own thing. But we've gotten submitted a few demos that were intended to run on these, like, Soviet computers from the 80s. Like, there were a bunch of Soviet machines that were copies of the British Sinclair ZX Spectrum. Then there was like a homegrown Soviet machine that used like a PDP-11 clone CPU, but was otherwise their own hardware design. And that kind of stuff, like that's really, that's really the kind of thing, like you're not going to see that in the U.S. outside of maybe like sitting in a museum behind glass or something. And the fact that there were still people in that corner of the earth developing cool stuff for like the computers they remembered their high school having one of that everybody wanted to play with back in like 1985. That's a really cool thing. And the other one, I think my favorite thing to see in the modern demos category. So like, I don't want to diss the people who make modern demos that use all the high end graphics hardware and everything, but like, it isn't really a surprise that you can do really cool real time animation with like, two top-of-the-line NVIDIA graphics cards in SLI because, you know, high-end games do that. And, like, the graphics compute power of those cards is probably equivalent to whatever Pixar had at their render farm back in the 90s, if not surpassing that. But there's a category of modern demo, the size-constrained demos where, like, the size of your program, once it's been compiled, is, you know, is constrained... So, like, there could be, like, a 64K one. Your entire program has to be 64K. 4Ks are also pretty common. You see even sometimes down to, like, you know, 6428 bytes. Demos smaller than, like, 64 bytes or so often don't do anything that interesting, basically just because the way modern PC hardware is, the code, the assembly language instructions are bigger than the assembly language instructions <laughs> of like a 6502 or a Z80 from an 80s machine. So it takes more code to print Hello World on screen than it would on like an Apple II. But there have been some really good four kilobyte demos that are actually doing, you know, real-time 3D graphics in high definition 
they'll have music playing that isn't like, you know, BB one note square waves, but, you know, sounds like real music. And once again, for me, going back to the love of just seeing people push, you know, push the envelope, you know, pushing the envelope of what can I do on a top of the line modern machine, you know, in the smallest possible amount of code, those are really impressive too. Because like a lot of these modern demos will be, you know, the demo may be several hundred megabytes or more because there's, you know, 3D models, there's pre-recorded music, that kind of thing. But doing the same stuff without pre-recording anything in a file that's smaller than a blank Word document is pretty cool. Yeah, I think that's really, really cool, to be completely honest with you. Uh, I And I could, tef- I could definitely see why, you know, the two of you and so many other people just kind of have, like, a huge passion and a love for this scene because it's just, like, you're going to always come across things that you were never expecting, but with things that have been in your life for, you know, the past 20, 30 years. And that has to be so fun just to be like wow didn't expect that you know it's like uh i don't know like some band coming back 25 years later and writing a really cool song like whoa didn't know it had him in him it's really really cool yeah so again demo splash is happening digitally online only november 20th and 21st um as we are wrapping up our conversation here uh let everybody know where they can attend demo splash and how they can find out more about it so the website is demosplash.org we do also have like your twitter.com slash demo splash we are on twitter we have a facebook page as well those are both linked from the demosplash.org site the streaming, the video stream is probably going to be on scenesat.org, S-C-E-N-E-S-A-T.org. Like the Scenesat crew, there were a really great bunch of people. Like I think there were Scenesat affiliated people in all different parts of the world. You know, they love the demo scene too. And like the two local Scenesat people here in Pittsburgh, Steph and Kev, have been running our online stream since the get-go. And, you know, like we're looking forward to working with them. They're going to be helping us now doing a stream for everyone as opposed to just our friends in Europe who can't (laughs) come to Pittsburgh. Yeah. So, you know, shout out to them for all the help they've given us over the years. And, you know, it should be fun. We'll have a more fun, more definite schedule up on the website soon. We're kind of finalizing our schedule, figuring out what our talk topics are, but just quickly to kind of go over the way the event works we try to split things up into themed blocks and, you know, change things up. So you're not having six hours straight of watching somebody like run old PC demos from 1992. So we might have, you know, 45 minutes of Commodore 64 demos, 45 minutes of old DOS demos, then somebody giving a talk about some topic, computer graphics or music, or just generally computer related that we think is cool. Then, you know, we're discussing some other stuff we might do. Like we're thinking we might have someone who likes to do playthroughs of retro video games and stream them, like do that as part of our event for a while that, you know, we're still working through the schedule, but then the exciting bit, like the part, I mean, it's all exciting to me. It's exciting to most of our attendees, if you can only spend 
a couple hours on Demo Splash, the thing I would really recommend you do is look for on the schedule something called Compo Screenings. That's the competition screenings. That's when the new stuff that people wrote for Demo Splash that they submitted to us to you know enter in our competitions. That's when we actually exhibit those live. So you'll actually be seeing stuff that nobody's ever seen before other than the people who wrote it and whoever amongst the organizers has to like go test it out to make sure it actually runs on our hardware, mm-hmm. you know, make sure nobody's trying to sneak obscene content. We're not comfortable Ooh. screening in that sort of thing. <laughs> so you're actually seeing brand new art that nobody's ever really seen in the public before. And yeah, if you've only got hour and a half, two hours to spend watching demo splash, that's the part I'd really recommend you check out, but it's all cool. And what we're going for with the streaming event is to have a rough schedule published. The stream will be up all the time. You know, I know a lot of people are working from home because of the coronavirus and such right now. We're hoping to be the kind of thing that, you know, you can have open in a tab while you're doing other things if you want to. And when something really cool pops up, you know, turn over and look at it. Yeah. Brandon. Yo. You got some uh, outside of demo splash. I imagine that you have some some music and stuff that maybe some people could check out if they're curious. If you want to promo any of that, let oh, people sure. know where they can find you. So my moniker is inverse, like the opposite phase, like I'm going through a phase or whatever. <laughs> no spaces. Uh, so my website is inversephase.com, and that'll just give you a link list to like. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, whatever. Um, I am pretty noisy on social media, uh, especially Twitter. But so you should feel free to yell at me or whatever, uh, or ask me questions or be like on that podcast, you said, what did you mean? (laughs) You know, uh, (laughs) stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, that would be the easiest place to find me. Uh, I don't know what, uh, what kind of music most of your listeners would be, uh, would be interested in, but I got a whole ton of tributes. Um, my most famous work is I, uh, I did an album called pretty eight machine. Oh, uh, and I very, I enunciated the word eight, not hate mm-hmm. because you can probably guess what this is, yes. especially after me giving a spiel about chip tunes. <laughs> um, so, um, so that, that made me internet famous for 15 minutes or whatever. Uh, but there's, there's a whole bunch of, you know, like tributes done on old machines. Uh, I do original game soundtracks for people that are doing, you know, like retro games. Now I can, you know, they can come to me and be like, I'm writing a game that's going to come out on the Nintendo. Can you write authentic NES music that I can put in my game? And the answer is yes. Um, <laughs> cool. you know, there's a, there's a local Pittsburgh studio called the uh, mega cat. Yeah, I think that does this um, and Mega Cat, uh, you know, like the idea is, is that their games, my music could actually be put directly into like I can send them the files that they need to actually put stuff in, you know, like a Genesis or a Nintendo yeah, game yeah, or yeah. whatever. They did. Uh, uh, did they do Coffee Crisis? Uh, yes, I believe they did. Yes. So, yeah. Uh, you know, like so anyway, uh, uh, you know, don't expect uh, don't expect to hear anything other than beeps or boops except for maybe one album, which I'd like to shout out. It doesn't uh, get as much recognition, but uh, it's called Bitteration One Genesis of Consequence. 
and it is entirely Sega Genesis, like EDM jams. Okay, cool. So uh, I, someone challenged me. Uh, the the sound chip in the Sega Genesis is frequency modulation FM, and if you make dubstep, dubstep bass wubs or whatever bass wobbles are all built with frequency modulation. Um, and I was, you know, making this kind of. You know, I was equating one to the other and being like, so really you could make bass wobbles on a Sega Genesis. They just wouldn't sound as good as like, you know, (laughs) something you did with massive or whatever. Yeah, you know, Um, and someone was like, well, Brendan, then the next question is obvious. Why don't you make some Sega Genesis bass wobbles or whatever? So they challenged me to make Sega Genesis dubstep. I did. And then they were like, you have to do more. So I was like, Oh God. Okay. So you know, <laughs> then I did some stuff with some drum and bass and, you know, some other stuff. So basically it's me kind of experimenting with, you know, like trying to make techno of various, you know, like genres on a Sega Genesis. So I'll shout out that. that sure. Album. It's, it's really uh, similar but, to, uh, kind of like how it, you're trying to make a lot happen with very limited capabilities. Just, yeah. but just music. It goes right back to that. What can I eke out of this Commodore 64? <laughs> what can yeah. I eke out of this Atari? Mm-hmm. It's just the music version of it. And in fact, what you hear in a lot of retro demos, you know, almost all of it could be considered chiptune. So, like, you know, my stuff can be used in a demo just like it can be used in a game. So, yeah. That rules. That rules. Well, yeah. as we round the train into the station, we're about to get off. I just want to say thank you to both of you guys, Brendan and Lincoln. Demo Splash. Again, one more time. Make some noise. November 20th, November 21st, demosplash.org. Check it out. Yeah. I guess I'll see y'all later. If anybody has anything else they want to say, now's the time. Otherwise, we're done. Yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot for having us. You're very yeah. welcome. You're very yeah. welcome. Thanks, dude.